0: There's a few interesting things that happen here that make this a shorter chapter than the others. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But as we begin to study in this, we have Pharaoh, the leader of the nation of Egypt. And last time we looked at Exodus, he was asked two big questions in Exodus chapter 10. Verse 3, Moses and Aaron, it says, Came to Pharaoh and they said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. How long, Pharaoh? It's really from from Yahweh. Then Exodus chapter 10 verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? One gets the sense that this great confrontation between Yahweh and Moses versus Pharaoh has gone about as far as it can go. Everyone seems to have had enough. Everyone except for one solitary man. He is a king. And he possesses a heart like granite stone. In Exodus, Exodus 11, this morning, we will see where the Lord reveals to Moses his final move in closing out this game of political chess. To the sovereign victor will pass the ownership of the Hebrew people and a glorious name. This decisive last step of confrontation. Will include, and and in your outlines, I'm not real good at alliteration oftentimes, but it worked this time. In this, you will see plague, plunder, and popularity. Then, through his prophet Moses, Yahweh then declares warnings to Pharaoh, and he describes details of death, devastation, distinction, and deliverance. In the prophesied events, Yahweh displays unwavering sovereignty. He does this by announcing his personal, his personal delivery of his people from the clutches of Pharaoh. First of all, every Egyptian family will be afflicted with tragic death. Secondly, Israel will be distinctively spared and in complete peace. Third, Egypt Egypt will repent and they will beg Israel to leave. And Israel will not only leave, but fourthly, it will plunder Egypt. And then Moses, in the midst of it all, will be given honor, even among the Egyptians. And then finally, as we have seen over and over again, Yahweh retains complete control of the heart of Pharaoh. Let's pray and ask the Lord to to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. So many of your scriptures speak about it, about itself, as being living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, for being a light to our path, being a, a, a balm, a soothing ointment for us, as being that which breaks a rock in pieces, a hammer which breaks a rock in pieces. Lord, all of these things are just our meager ways of trying to describe The indescribable. The power and essence of you speaking to us through your word. So Father, please open it up to us today. Please give us understanding. You've told us that these things are spiritually discerned and we need your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. Lord, please do that. Overcome my weaknesses and and my missteps and, and Lord, please make your truth to be known and to sink deep into all of our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. (laughs) If you look at Exodus chapter 10, how it ends, and Exodus chapter 11, how it begins, that can kind of confuse us. I don't know if you've given that any thought, if you've read through that. I want you to remember that the books of the Old Testament, like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Uh, Hosea Joshua and, and many of the others they were not divided into chapters until about 1227 AD so there were no chapters when they first wrote these until 1227 AD that's about only 800 years ago from where we are today and in some cases that is two to three thousand years after they were written. Now each of the chapters were further divided into individual verses about 200 years after that. Many times, the ways that the chapters and verses are divided are effective and they help us in understanding, but but not always. For instance, look with me at Exodus chapter 10 beginning with verse 24 this morning. Exodus 10, 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Whoops, excuse me. Yes. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God, and even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face you shall die. So Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. When we finished at that point, how many of us Perhaps without really thinking about it, we assume that that was Pharaoh and Moses' last moment. That they had had enough of each other and they had parted ways. Well, interestingly, good news is that confrontation didn't end at the end of chapter 10. We have something here that's rather unique in Exodus. Exodus. You see, if it had ended there, then the prophecies and warnings of Exodus 11 would be out of sequence, and the threats made by Pharaoh and the declarations made by Moses would make no sense either. The first three verses of Exodus chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, are actually like an inserted paragraph to help us understand what is happening. Albert Barnes Said this. He said the first three verses of this chapter. Are parenthetical. Before Moses relates the last warning. Given to Pharaoh. He feels it right to recall to his readers. Minds. The revelation and command. Which had been previously given to him by the Lord. End quote. In other words. Verses one through three are filling us in. On what the Lord had prepped Moses for. Prior to this final confrontation. That confrontation begins. In chapter 10 verse 24. It's sort of like. An aside in a play. How many of you have been to a play. With live actors on stage. Occasionally you have what's called an aside. In an aside. It's where the character stops the play. And usually all the other characters freeze. And he begins to spill the audience in. On some of the important details. Concerning the events going on. The commentary from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Reads. And the Lord said to Moses. As the verse begins should read rather the Lord had said unto Moses it may be inferred therefore that he had been apprised that the crisis had now arrived that the next plague would so effectually humble and alarm the mind of Pharaoh that he would thrust them out thence altogether and thus the word of Moses must be regarded as a prediction and that's not unique. Uh, MacArthur, Adam Clark, John Calvin all agree that these three verses were inserted. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and we're going to read this aside that Moses gives us. Here he explains the background of what Yahweh had told him prior to this final confrontation with Moses that begins in Exodus, ex, or Exodus ten twenty-four, and extends until chapter 11, verse 8. So there's overlap in this chapter break and I hope that hasn't been terribly confusing but I wanted to offer that up to help us understand a little bit about what was going on and how it's not uh, as confused as it may seem so verses 1 through 3 Yahweh's preparation of Moses he begins to speak to him about a plague the Lord had said to Moses yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This is the first use of a very specific Hebrew word for plague. It can also be translated as a blow, as a strike or a wound. Motier says, the nine preceding acts of God... The nine plagues that have come so far were probationary exercises. The Lord who knows all made no secret that the first nine plagues would not lead to Israel's deliverance. The tenth act of God would succeed where the others had failed. This tenth strike, this plague will be so effective that Pharaoh will not simply acquiesce and say, Okay, you may go, I'll let you go. The more accurate translation is literally that he will send you away. We know this is what the author means because Yahweh then gives clearer description and says in that verse, favor will drive you away. And that means exactly what it says. It can be translated as cast away, expelled, thrust out. And to make sure the message is clear, God even adds the word completely there at the end. They will be thrust out completely. They will be out of here. Verse two, speak now, God tells Moses in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. The second part of God's instruction to Moses is plunder, plague them plunder. This act on Israel's part is best understood as it reads in most translations. They ask of the people rather than the word borrow. Again, Barnes gives clarity to what is happening. He says, The Egyptians had made the people serve with rigor. And the Israelites, when about to leave the country forever, were to ask or claim the jewels as a just, though very inadequate, remuneration for services which had made their lives bitter. End quote. Every Israelite, everyone is commanded to ask from his and her Egyptian neighbors for their most valuable treasures. This amounts to an odd sort of voluntary plundering. The Israelites were not instructed to ask for food or for extra shoes or cooking utensils or or tools or clothing, uh, something practical that maybe would help them along their way. No, they are to ask and be given articles of jewelry of gold and silver. The riches of Egypt would be poured into the hands of the slaves who had served them. The gold and silver would be eventually used by the Israelites in both the wicked practice of idolatry and the true act of worship of Yahweh. The voluntary pillaging of Egypt was indeed it's a strange and an amazing miracle. But it is also one That Moses had been told of in advance by Yahweh. And we can look way back in Moses' life. During Moses' day as a simple shepherd. Caring for his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of this desert. He's a nobody nowhere. Doing a hired man's job. Exodus chapter 3, 21. At that moment, God says, And I will give this people favor in the sights of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. God had told Moses that's what would happen. They would walk out of there, not empty-handed. Verse 3, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Thirdly, he would have popularity. The Lord's next step is one he has demonstrated several times already. I would call it heart work. But this time, instead of a hard heart, he gives the Egyptians a change of heart to be kind and generous, gracious toward the Israelites. Now picture what is literally happening here. Suddenly, the entire nation, including Pharaoh, will not only now allow the Israelites to leave, They will desire them to get out as quickly as possible and never return. And as the Israelites leave, the Egyptians are not going to taunt or mock or throw rocks at them. The Israelites will leave with respect and honor from the nation that they once served as slaves. This is really, if you stop and think about this, this is unbelievable how this could happen. To top it off, the citizens of the nation of Egypt will dig deep into their own pockets and ensure that the Israelites don't leave empty-handed. Instead, they will leave with Egypt's dearest treasures in their travel bag. It's as dramatic and bizarre a turnaround as any fiction writer could write. But this is real life. Then Moses himself, Moses, he would experience the ultimate reversal in public popularity after suffering rebuke and rejection from his own people, remember how that was, and outright defiance and hatred from Pharaoh, Moses will be great in the land. And it's described in the sight of Pharaoh's own servants and in the sight of the common people. In some way, those people will look at this man and they will see what God has done through him. And he will be great, far greater than the Pharaoh. Verse 4. So Moses said, and this is where we get to Yahweh's prophecy to Pharaoh, declared through his prophet Moses Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn even of the cattle. The prophecy begins with death. This plague of death really has three very ominous and judicious components. The first is something that is missing. You see, there is no command here from Yahweh through Moses to let my people go that luxury is evidently past. Judgment is come and the sentence of death is certain. Secondly, unlike several previous plagues, the Lord does not specify tomorrow. Yahweh will descend descend in devastation about midnight, possibly that night, but more likely within the next several days. When When we get to chapter 12, we will look at the Passover instructions And we will see that four days would have been needed from the 10th to the 14th in preparation. So there'll be some detail there. But God does not pinpoint it like he did before. He says around midnight. But the third aspect of this, I think, is is the most intimidating factor. Notice something unique about this. Something that makes this plague different from all the others. This one is to be carried out specifically, personally by Yahweh himself. Obviously, each plague required the sovereign power of the Lord. But look carefully. Here there is no mention of Moses waving his rod or picking up dust and throwing it up in the air or taking a step of any kind. One writer commented, Now even the brothers, Moses and Aaron, Are just as much spectators as anyone else. The final decisive blow. Will be dealt directly by Yahweh. In Exodus 11.1. The pronoun Yahweh uses about himself. Is what they call an emphatic personal pronoun. I will bring one more plague. And in verse 4 he says. I will go out into the middle of Egypt. The psalmist. Later on, picks up this theme. In Psalm 135, verse 8, he says, He destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. And in Psalm 136, verse 10, To him who struck Egypt in their firstborn. Pharaoh may have begun gun with no idea who this Yahweh is, but now unmistakably, he must know who he is battling. It will be sudden, and it will be deadly. Every firstborn of every home in the entire entire country, rich and poor, royalty and servant, famous and obscure, even man and beast, everyone will suffer. Even what small amount of livestock still existed in this destroyed nation will suffer this fate. And the targeted firstborn of Pharaoh his own son, that son was supposed to someday ascend to rule as political, military, and even the religious ruler of Egypt. One commentator wrote, Moses told Pharaoh that his son would soon die. It will be the death of the next deity, the man who is expected to rule Egypt as God. Again, please think back. Yahweh had pronounced earlier in Exodus chapter 4 Israel is my son he said my firstborn so I say to you let my son go that he may serve me but if you refuse to let him go indeed I will kill your son your firstborn surely surely at such a cost Pharaoh would turn back from his stubborn defiance of Yahweh Verse 6 goes on. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. Such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Devastation. Devastation. The accompanying sorrow will be wider spread and deeper in intensity. Than anything ever experienced in Egypt. Or ever would be in the future. Loud wailing. These are piercing shrieks of anguish. Will rise up everywhere. Everywhere. There will be no escape from this tragedy. No escape except verse 7. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. The distinction the distinction, but not a dog shall growl. There will be screams of a- anguish echoing from every home in the city and country. But in the community of God's people, there will be peaceful silence. Not even the sound of a single barking dog. This is really an interesting way to say this. Many of you have dogs in your home or just outside. We, we've had some, and we had one in particular that I, I'm convinced if I just yawned back in the bedroom, that dog who was out in the garage could hear it. And we begin to bark and go crazy. It, it just is so in tune to any sound out of the ordinary at night. And others that we've had have been similar to that too. Maybe some of you can uh, have experienced that. But this is such a graphic depiction. It would be so peaceful that during that time there won't be a dog barking about anything in the area of the people of God. God will have his hand over them in not just a peaceful way, it's like a supernatural peaceful way. And they will not be touched. The peace and protection given to Yahweh's people while terror and grief gripped Egypt was far beyond anything normal. Nothing, absolutely nothing was amiss while all of Egypt screamed in agony. And then finally, deliverance. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. That is the end of that confrontation. Kori means burning intense fierceness. And the, the other word that's combined there is af and it means the nose or the nostrils. Moses' anger would have been so intense it would have been obvious to all. One unanswered question is what specifically made Moses so angry? Scripture does not tell us, but the repeated defiance of Pharaoh against Yahweh and then the devastation his rebellion had already caused and the devastation that it would cause to the people of Egypt surely influenced Moses in some way. Calvin writes that Moses was disturbed with indignation against sin. The deep anger toward this. Stubbornness, pride, sin, and its sober, devastating consequences past and yet to come. End quote. Now we find them on the precipice of Yahweh's purpose. A precipice is defined by Webster as a falling headlong, a steep Descent. Pharaoh and his unfortunate nation are at the brink of falling into an abyss of total disaster. Yahweh's prophecy. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Yahweh's purpose that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. As Exodus. Chapter 10 demonstrated the purpose behind Pharaoh's refusal to listen was not of Pharaoh. It was of Yahweh. Pharaoh's defiance necessitated the strike of plagues 1 through 9 and then the final plague 10 performed by Yahweh. The stage is now set. In verse 10, we find three final pieces in place. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he, Pharaoh, did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. They were obedient completely to the very letter. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart is specified for the fourth time in Exodus. And then lastly, Pharaoh did not let the Israelites go. A time of unparalleled anguish and death is about to be unleashed upon the people of Egypt. One of the blessings about studying this, sometimes it just begins to grip you in ways that you hadn't anticipated. And you think about that. What if we knew tonight, the firstborn of each of our families, we going to die? And we were told that by a man who had done nine amazing things. Surpassing all logic and reason and ability that you would see naturally. And then that would unfold. And on the other hand, the people of God, they're about to be delivered out of the depths of decades of cruel slavery and oppression. Yet the desert of God's that God's people are about to escape into for the next forty years will be a harsh place of death and difficulty before they finally enter the Promised Land. Brothers and sisters, life then and life now is a place of many blessings and a place of very difficult hardships. Regardless of the trial or circumstances Israel faced, Yahweh is fulfilling His sovereign plan for consummate victory and glory. He demonstrates complete control over every facet, every facet of life and death, success and failure, glory and shame. Is that true today? It is. During Thanksgiving week, our attention was drawn to two tragic auto accidents. The first in which a new young bride was killed and her husband critically injured as they sat stopped in a car at an intersection. The second when a husband was killed and his wife seriously injured as a tree fell on their moving automobile. This has been a devastating two weeks for these families. Grief has filled their lives. Many of you have walked the same way. You have been through this valley of the shadow of death. Yet in the midst of sorrow, Christ is present. He is present with His sons and daughters and we have heard those testimonies. He is an unfailing shepherd when His children are devastated by life's sorrows, including death, which He Himself controls. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39 says, See now that I... Even I am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Psalm 23. i <coughs> most of you could recite this. Many of you could by memory. It's such an important statement from God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We will even be in the presence of enemies. But the Lord is with us. He guides us for His purpose. See, men and women, I think, generally experience the truth of God's sovereignty in one of two ways. Yahweh is absolutely sovereign. God's people see and are convinced of God's sovereign hand in carrying His people through every trial, no matter the size of the opposition or the depth of grief. Habakkuk 3 we read in verse 17 though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will be joyful in God my Savior the sovereign Lord is my strength he makes my feet like the feet of a deer he enables me to tread on the heights Daniel chapter 3 verse 16 through 18 three Hebrew young men have been put on trial and the king is threatening them and they say "O oh Nebuchadnezzar we have no need to answer you in this matter if this be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand O oh king but if not Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is it. When we are weak, Christ is strong. But another way in which men respond to the sovereignty of Yahweh has been described here as we've marched through Exodus with defiance of God, which results in complete loss. Continued resistance to the lordship of Jesus Christ will result in the loss of everything we value and love. Mocher writes, the sequence of plagues illustrates the awesome biblical truth that the final issue for recalcitrant humanity is to come face to face with God. It is appointed for men to die once and after that to face judgment. William Ernest Henley wrote a poem and I want to read a couple of lines from it. It's called Invictus. He wrote, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In my days as a high school rebel, and college fool, that sounded like such a noble piece of literature. Now, through the truth of Scripture and the lens of the Holy Spirit and my own experiences of over 60 years of life, I see it as the raving of a fool. Luke 12:20 reads, "But God said to him, "You fool, this very night, your soul is required of you." Psalm 103 says, "For a man, as for man, his days are like grass." as a flower of the field, so he flourishes, and when the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. A warning of destruction. Vance Havner told a story about a church member who didn't like the sermons he preached about hell. Preach about the meek and lonely Jesus, this member told him. Havner's reply, that's where I got my information about hell. The setting I want to finish with here briefly is in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, verse 14, we get the setting here. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things and they derided him, derided Jesus. And Jesus said to them, and I want to pick up in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried, The rich man cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented and besides all this between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us and then the rich man said I beg you therefore father that you would send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment and Abraham said to him they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. We could go through the scriptures. We could go to Matthew over and over again. We have the wheat and the tares, the dragnet cast into the sea. We have the wedding feast. We have 2 Thessalonians 1. Uh, where it speaks of flaming fires of vengeance on those who do not know God and do, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures give us a very dire, strong warning. Moses was giving that same warning in essence to Pharaoh. Repent. Let these people go. Obey Yahweh. But he would not. He refused And I believe we have an application here that we cannot live that way either. The time will come around midnight and disaster will fall and there will be no escape. I pray that the words of Yahweh, spoken and written through Moses and through Jesus, address what you do with the rest of your brief and fragile life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask that you would show us the truths about life, about what you have ordained from the beginning of time to save those who would look to to you in faith and repent, that would believe on you and escape destruction and judgment Father, I know that this this theme is, is very unpopular in our day and age. Maybe that's why we have so many shallow professing believers and, and many who are just nuns. They want to have nothing to do with God. But Father, I pray that your word would grip us and that you would speak to us of the Of the the tragedies, the darkness, the sin and what it does for eternity and that you also would grip us Lord please show us the way of life show us the glorious son that you've sent as a man who humbled himself and became obedient to death even the death of the cross therefore at the name of Jesus every knee will bow someday every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some in joy and thanksgiving and praise to you as you come. And some in terror, knowing that they are your enemies and will be subject to condemnation and judgment for eternity. Lord, please move in hearts here. Those that are saved, move us, Lord, to be compelled to speak the only words of hope. And those who are unsaved here, Lord, please, please, Father, have mercy and awaken their hearts to see you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.